Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Holwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're discussing more mythos deities, namely Abo Sathler and more Digian. Two for the price of one. Yes, buy one, get one free. So in previous episodes where we talked about mythos deities, we focused on a single deity, but this time we thought it might be interesting to give a little airtime to a couple of the lesser gods, in particular two from Clark Ash and Smith, who represent, I guess, sort of opposite sides of the coin. And so we're going to talk about Ubo Sattler, who is the unbegotten source, and then moving on from life and creation to death, we'll talk a little bit about Mordigian. Well, let's kick off with Abo Sattler. So where does Abo Sattler come from? As Scott said, created by Clark Ashton Smith, one of Lovecraft's contemporaries, back in 1933, the July issue of Weird Tales featured a story featuring Abo Sattler. In fact, even called Uber Sattler, conveniently enough. He didn't bury the name of the god deep in the text of one story, unlike Mordigian, but that has a much better title. Now, one thing you'll notice in this upcoming quote is that well, you won't notice because it's spoken, not written. But when you look at the written names of some of the other gods in this quote, they're clearly references to some of Lovecraft's gods, but with variant spellings. Now, this makes me wonder, is Abo Sathla a variant spelling of something else? Not that we know what that other thing is, but, you know, it would just kind of be consistent. This is something that all of those early Lovecraft circle writers did, but Smith in particular, in that if he was using these names, he'd riff on them and come up with different versions. I mean, not just of Lovecraft's deities, but of his own. And I mean, Lovecraft did that a bit as well. And, yeah, I think it's kind of a cool thing to do that I guess I see an awful lot in published Call of Cthulhu scenarios in the games I've played, that people tend to treat certain names as being canon. But these are, after all, inhuman words. These are human attempts to pronounce things that were not designed for human mouths. So, of course, there are going to be all sorts of weird, weird riffs on them. It also wasn't just the names of the gods that they played around with. I mean, there were tongue-in-cheek references to the authors as well. Oh, yeah. You had the wizards mm. HPL and Clark Ashton that were yep. referencing yes. each other's stories as well. And the Comte Derlet. Who was that reference to? August Derlet. Oh, okay. I'd, honestly, I'd never bagged that one. I always just keep thinking omelette whenever I see that one. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the story Ubo Sattler takes place partly in 1930s London, but it also ties in with Smith's Hyperborean cycle, which we talked a little bit about when we discussed Clark Ash and Smith many, many episodes ago. And the story includes a little snippet from the Book of Ibon, Smith's own creation, that tells us all about, well, at least a little bit about Ubo Sathla. For Ubo Sathla is the source and the end. Before the coming of Zothakwa, or Yok Sothoth, or Cthulhut from the stars, Ubo Sathla dwelt in the steaming fens of the new-made earth, a mass without head or members, 
spawning the grey, formless efts of the prime and grisly prototypes of terrene life. And all earthly life, it is told, shall go back at last through the great circle of time to Abo Sathla. So it lives in the fens, <laughs> it does. like where my wife comes from, <laughs> over like Ely, over that way. Apparently, yes. Emily, was my daughter, was just reading a book about Beowulf, because she studied Beowulf, and it makes an argument that the Grendelkin might have come from the fens in England. Actually, it might be the fens in uh, the Netherlands, but clearly a reference to the fens. There should be an international treaty that says you can't name a place the same name in multiple instances around the world. It's like having London, Ontario and London, England. What? Why? I'm sure that would work fine, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> International agreements. And only one person can be called Matthew. There can be only one. You'll have to fight all the others. That's the only thing you can do. On the other hand, if you only had a single use of a name, you wouldn't have Gen Con anymore, would you? Mm-hmm. Because Gen Con, the Geneva Convention, comes from Lake Geneva, which is in Wisconsin. Ah, uh, And not the real Geneva in Switzerland. Well, there you go. They'd have to call it something else. But it'd still be the best four days in gaming. But yes, Ubo Sattler, as we've just heard, is the origin of all terrestrial life, squatting at the beginning of Earth's history and just shedding all these single-celled organisms that would then go on and evolve into all the life that we see on Earth today. Even to the Earth's beginning, when Ubo Sattler, the unbegotten source, lay vast and swollen and yeasty amid the vaporing slime. That's a lovely turn of phrase, isn't it? Well, as well as being the source of all life, Abo Sathala guards some stone tablets filled with the wisdom of the gods or something like that, who died before the earth was born. So there are these weird stone tablets with this soupy god in a swamp in the fence. <laughs> At the beginning of time. We're building a picture. It is an odd combination, but Smith in the story spells it out like this. They had passed to the lightless void, leaving their lore inscribed upon tablets of ultra-stellar stone, and the tablets were guarded in the primal mire by the formless, idiotic demiurge, Ubo Sattler. Matt, do you want to explain to our listeners who might not know what a demiurge is? Like a false god or false creator, something that's held up as a god but is most certainly not a god. So yeah, I can kind of see that as being this false creator. There is a creation aspect in there, even if it is quite um, soupy and primal. Mm. Now, despite being the guardian of this ultimate wisdom, he is described in the story as idiotic, much like Azathoth, the blind idiot god at the heart of the universe. We'll come to this, I think, when we go into the development of the god by other writers. But I think it was Lynn Carter, it might have been August Durdlis, but I'm pretty sure it was Lynn Carter, decided that Ubo Sattler and Azathoth were actually brothers. Yay, family trees for the win. This wisdom is sought by wizards throughout time, including the Hyperborean Zon Mesomalek, who appears in this story. So Smith again drills down a little bit more into this within the story. There in the grey beginning of Earth, the formless mass that was Ubo Sattler reposed amid the slime and the vapours. Headless, without organs or members, it sloughed from its oozy sides in a slow, ceaseless wave, the amoebic forms that were the archetypes of earthly life. Horrible it was, as if there had been aught to apprehend the horror, 
and loathsome if there had been any to feel loathing. About it, proned or tilted in the mire, there lay the mighty tablets of star-quarried stone that were writ with the inconceivable wisdom of the pre-mundane gods. Now, these tablets are like catnip to wizards, aren't they? If you're in search of any kind of ultimate wisdom, forget the Necronomicon or, or any drivel like that. This is where it's at. This was written by the gods themselves. It is their wisdom. Smith doesn't actually explain in the story why Ubo Sathla has this. He's just sort of plonked down on Earth, and he's got these tablets, and he is this guardian of ultimate wisdom. But, yeah. I like the idea that he's this kind of this idiot god who's read these tablets that have given him the secret of creation of life, but he's just so thick he's got it wrong, and instead of spurting out some higher form of life, he shits out humanity instead, <laughs> or what will eventually become humanity. Kind of adds to our insignificance in the universe that we're basically we're an equation that's been read wrong, or he's read to serve man and got the recipe wrong. <laughs> I want to see Charlton Heston coming back with the tablets. <laughs> Like Moses. <laughs> Isn't it History of the World Part 1 where it's he cuts to the top oh. of the mountain and says, I bring you these 15! Shit! Crash! 10! Commandments! <laughs> <laughs> yes. It is. <laughs> yeah, I rewatched that film last year. Doesn't stand up fantastically. <laughs> but it's good to be king. But as I mentioned, yeah, I mean, wizards are very interested in finding this information. So in this story, we have this magical crystal that somehow creates a psychic connection between this guy in the 1930s, uh, Paul Trigardis, and this Hyperborean wizard called Zon, who sort of merge into one, and maybe Paul Trigardis is a reincarnation of Zon Mesomalek or something like that, and they project their joint minds back through various stages of creation on Earth, through, first of all, humanity, and then the serpent people, and then back to prehistoric life, and then finally arriving at the unbegotten source. I do love the fact he managed to get the snake people in there somehow. That was a nice touch. Yes. They don't get enough love. If we ever set up like a barbecue shack, we should have some unbegotten sauce that people can put on their burgers. <laughs> we should market that. The unbegotten sauce. I mean, there's probably several hundred people around the world that would get the joke, <laughs> at least. But it always makes everything taste like chicken. Indeed. Well, it does already, so it wouldn't matter. You wouldn't need the sauce. Or protoplasm. Mm. Also, right, so unbegotten. I was like, oh, it's the unbegotten sauce unbegotten is a weird word so begotten means generated by procreation so yeah you're generated by procreation but he's the source of things that aren't generated by procreation am i reading that right is that how you're reading it yeah he just does it with himself no that he himself is unbegotten that he is this deity of unknown provenance who has not been begotten himself but he then becomes the source of all other life but the source of all life isn't from procreation, is what I got from it. Otherwise, why call him the unbegotten source? Well, the fact that he himself is unbegotten. Hmm. Mm. I can see interpretations either way. Well, this is maybe skipping ahead a little bit, but the, the connection with the elder things and their creation of life, it does almost seem like rather than 
a god is a very much a grandiose term for a living machine that shits out biological material every so often. Mm. That it doesn't have much of a godlike quality to it beyond what it can do, but also a machine of some elder thing level technology could also do something very similar. But the story does wrap up with this last glimpse of what happens if you send your mind all the way back to Ubersathla himself, which is probably not something you want to be doing. And there, to the goal of a forgotten search, was drawn the thing that had been, or would sometime be, Paul Trigardis and Zon Mesomalek. Becoming a shapeless F to the prime, it crawled sluggishly and obliviously across the fallen tablets of the gods, and fought and ravened blindly with the other spawn of Ubersathla. I think that is a great sort of ironic ending that these twin wizards or the single wizard with two faces has projected himself back in time, has come across these tablets with the ultimate knowledge that he has been seeking and is there now just mindlessly crawling across it, unable to actually do anything with the knowledge. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. It rings a bell or at least evokes that kind of feeling from Frank Belknot-Long's Hounds of mm. Tindalos that looking that far back in time never goes well. Yeah. That you see something that really will just basically either kill you or make you mindless. Yeah. Stop at 1970. Don't go any further. <laughs> <laughs> you see the horror of pre-decimalisation. <laughs> if it had done that, it'd have been fine. So Lynn Carter expanded on Smith's story and especially the snippet of The Book of Ibon in his own story-stroke essay, The Unbegotten Source, which was published in Crypt of Cthulhu, as you'll all be aware, number 23. That widely available tome. Yeah, this is pretty obscure stuff. I used to buy Crypt of Cthulhu religiously or blasphemously. Yeah, but it's not like you can get a copy very easily. I'm saying obscure in the way that you can't source it very easily. You can actually buy PDFs of a lot of the Crypt of Cthulhu's now, and I'll link to it from the website. Excellent. It's actually a great source of all these pre-internet essays and speculations and stories from the mythos writers who were around in those, I guess, early days of Call of Cthulhu, and there was some overlap. Another source. <laughs> Although for those of us who like dead tree copies, they are quite expensive to get a hold of. So Carter's version of this story, or the elements of the story, lean very heavily into Derlith's War in Heaven interpretation of the mythos. Much like Azathoth, he portrays Ubo Sattler as a rebel who stood up against the Elder Gods, and in this case stole the Elder Keys, these tablets, graven with the secrets of the Elder Gods, and actually used them to create our world. I'm not sure if it was in this essay or I read it somewhere else, that one of the places that supposedly Ubersathler stole them for, according to the interpretation of one author or more, was that they were taken from the, uh, the Great Library of Solano. Yeah, it is in this. By the use merely of a single key... Was Obosathla able to cause this earth to fall into our universe, far from that unthinkably alien plane beyond the cosmos of matter and of time? Now that's interesting because this isn't just him creating life, this is now 
crediting him with actually effectively the creation of the world. And I guess this does tie in a little bit with the Dunwich Horror, because there was that idea in there, wasn't there, that the Earth was originally in a different dimension that was more suitable for the great old ones. And this is what Wilbur Wakeley was summoning Yog sothoth for, basically to take the Earth back where it belonged. I was about to make the same connection and state that, does that mean that actually Wilbur Waitley was one of the good guys trying to put right what once went wrong? Poor misunderstood Wilbur. <laughs> <laughs> so Abba Sattler's spent like eons guarding these keys, these stone tablets in his swampy fen. With his many members and vapours. And all these spawn and so on. Though he's doing this without any intelligence, because much like Azathoth in Derlith's interpretation of the mythos, he was apparently supposed to be intelligent in the first place, but because of his rebellion, the Elder Gods destroyed his intelligence, and this is why he is now mindless. Personally, I don't like that aspect of either Azathoth or Ubersathler, that I prefer the idea that they were mindless in the first place, because that, to me, is a much weirder interpretation of the universe that our creator gods, that the creator of all things, potentially Azathoth, and the creator of life on Earth, Ubersathler, just are these mindless idiots that just did it without even realising. That, to me, is much scarier. Hmm. It also adds a lot more degree of mystery. It's almost by giving an explanation as to, oh, this is how this thing came to be. It's it's almost taking away part of that mysterious or that's that, that mystique factor about it. Now, Carter, we've talked about Abu Sattler being in the in the fens, but Carter locates Abu Sattler in Mount Vormithadrath, which dedicated listeners will remember as the location of Smith's The Seven Gearses story, a story we featured in a previous episode. This puts Abu Sattler and Aboth in the same mountain, mm. they're neighbours. It's a bloody big mountain. And they are kind of comparable. And it's really interesting comparing the two because they are both these sort of oozing gelatinous masses that spunk out creations all over the place that then sort of slither off and do their own things and change and mutate. You could potentially argue that Ubo Sathra and Aboth are then the same thing. But on the other hand it sort of seems like they're opposites in a lot of ways, because if you think about the Seven Gearses, there is that bit in there where Aboth is repelled by anything to do with humanity. He likes his own creations, but anything that's to do with us is somehow unclean to him, even though he is the source of uncleanliness. Aboth is described in the story as the ultimate source of all miscreation and abomination. So it's it's almost like they are polar opposites, that Ubo Sattler is the source of creation and Aboth is the source of miscreation. I'm pretty sure the two of them just met on some internet <laughs> fetish site. And they're just like, you know, we got a lot in common. Let's just get into that mountain and do some dirty stuff. Have you got a lot of members too? <laughs> do you like the vapors and the slime let's snuggle up in a nice cozy cave and ooze <laughs> straying into carry on cthulhu territory there <laughs> so we've got all this stuff about abo sattler i mean at least aboth portrays some intelligence and so on abo sattler doesn't it's a an oozy slimy thing in a pit in the fens or in a mountain take your pick 
What do we do with this in games? There's a couple of things that have been added to that, I think, in gaming law, but it's weird where it's come from because, as far as I can tell, listeners, please correct me if I'm wrong because I may well have missed it, I can't think of a single scenario out there that features him in the kind of core Call of Cthulhu products. We must fix this. I've tried to think of ways to use him, but it just comes down to there's a blob with some tablets. Those tablets, though, are like the ultimate source of wisdom. So... In a lot of ways, that has got to be the biggest MacGuffin in the Cthulhu mythos. If you've got anyone who is after any kind of forbidden knowledge or secrets of the universe, that surely is the number one item on their cosmic shopping list. Oh, hell yeah. All the sweet stuff from the restricted section of the Library of Solano. Hell yeah! What self-respecting crazy cultist wouldn't want to get their hands on that? Or player wouldn't want to get their hands on that? But there's been a few things which have been added to the location of Ubersather in gaming. I'm not sure if it predates it, but definitely the 6th edition write-up for Ubersather mentions that the grotto where it can be found can be entered deep through fissures in the Antarctic ice or through other secret entrances in the cold waste of the dreamlands. But they definitely seem to have loads of different ways from which you can get down to this cold little area. A lot of people I've seen that have tried to use this have focused on that reference of Antarctic ice Mm. that they have him down at the South Pole, which again, considering that there's the parallel that's drawn with the older things makes sense. That you've got this proto-Shoggoth making machine that's down there pumping away its little uh, Shoggoth or proto-human baby type things. Even uses the same description. It's that it lets off these brood or offspring and then quickly swallows them back up and it's almost word for word the same description with Aboth that yeah it kind of shits out this monster and then Mm. just eats it again but some get away and do things they do seem to be presented almost identically and in the Malleus Monstrorum it gives a bit more on the location the possible locations it portrays them as debatable possibly in Kinyan or Nakai or that it dwells in somewhere called Iqua uh, here to undiscovered place near the ancient, now lost Mount Vormidreth. And it also talks about being accessible, perhaps, via the dreamlands through some uh, gug-crowded tunnels. Mm. From the description in the story, I mean, that doesn't sound very Antarctic. But on the other hand, this is hugely prehistoric and there's been a lot of continental mm. drift since then. So I guess it does make sense that this Fenland that he was occupying before has somehow now drifted down in this part of the Antarctic. So, yeah, I guess I could buy into that. Well, there are other stories that apparently was a kind of fertile jungle way back in the day and these stones these keys they get referenced in uh, the necronomicon the narcotic manuscripts and as we mentioned the book of ibon so there's some hints there that players could find or investigators could hit upon i can kind of imagine them like going on some sort of mystical quest Mm. for these tablets and also in the malleus monstrorum there's reference to the brood of abosathla as a separate kind of little entities and they're more or less human in scale they're not human in description but i mean they are kind of amorphous so i think it would be within the realm of things to go on some sort of mystical quest and these brood to take the form of humans that you could meet they only have intelligence five so they're really dumb but they could be bestowed with greater intelligence i guess for a short time so you could kind of go on a quest meeting these humans that they're a bit more like odo from uh, deep space nine they're not really humans but you know take on human form that could make for an interesting interesting encounters and they're all as grumpy as a shapeshifter too indeed 
On the other hand, if you're looking at the more mystical aspects of trying to get access to those, you have that whole time travel through, well, in that case, that crystal, but obviously there are different things like the plutonium drug and so on that would allow you to project your mind back to those ancient days. Then, I guess from a scenario point of view or a conflict point of view, the interesting thing then becomes how are you going to protect yourself from sharing the fates that we saw our sorcerers undergo at the end of the story? Is mm. there any way around that? Mm. You know, Is there any way back from that? Just wait a couple of thousand years to either evolve into something more, more intelligent or be subsumed into one of these blobs and then get spat out and hope that you run away from it quick enough and then be trapped in the body of something really dumb for as long as it lives. I know that feeling. <laughs> Another thing you mentioned in passing there, Matt, as well, which was the connection potentially with the Elder Things. In At the Mountains of Madness, we have that implication that the Elder Things ended up creating all life on Earth. So this, at first blush, seems to contradict what Ubo Sattler, the story, is all about. But on the other hand, we have an interesting article on the internet, which I'll link to from the show notes, from the Lovecraftian Science blog, which goes into the idea that the elder things basically harnessed not just Ubo Sattler, but the knowledge of the tablets. And that, as you mentioned there, the protoshockith was basically material that was harvested from Ubo Sattler, and then that then became the building blocks of life. So the two don't necessarily contradict each other. Hmm. Yeah, we get a reference to something similar in Malleus, yeah. As a god, he was so dumb, it took another race to work out how to use his power. <laughs> Personally, I wouldn't bestow a Bosathler with too much power, I think. I can't put him on a level with Azathoth, I think because it's here on Earth. And putting it here, it's very much in our backyard. It seems much more of a domestic scale, less of a kind of a cosmic entity. Otherwise, it makes the whole universe very Earth-centric yeah. if the ruler of the universe is here or the spawn of the universe is here which seems to go against a lot of what the mythos is about. Mm. Well, I think specifically the original story does talk about the fact that he is the origin of life on Earth, mm. so he is our local creator god. That also makes me think that you could even use Ubo Sattler if you had scenarios involving mad science and experimentation with the mythos as sort of an alternative to Shubhnikarath in some ways, in that you have this sort of proto-organic matter, what I guess could even be seen as the ultimate stem cells, this mutable source of all life, mm. that you could then experiment with much as the older things did when they created the Shoggoths, and do really incredibly underwise and entertaining things with. I'm just picturing a scenario here set maybe 100, 200 years in the future that you've got this drilling rig down in Antarctica mm. that's been harvesting bits of Ubo Sattler for generations, and finally it's starting to run out. <laughs> a bit like the oil fields drying up. But all of a sudden they've had these wonderful advances from this god, and now they're down to the last few drops. Yeah, yeah it's a non-renewable resource, folks. <laughs> Careful how you use yeah. it. Be responsible with harvesting your great old ones. In this case, it's an outer god, according to Malus Monstorum. Right. Although Mordigian is a great old one. Well, we'll get into that in a moment. Should we move on to Mordigian? 
As I've mentioned before, Maldikian is kind of the flip side of this in that he's another Clark Ash and Smith deity, but this time we're going to talk about death. A lot more fun, lively subject here. So the Charnel God is the third of Smith's Zothic stories, set in a far future dying earth, and was first published in March 1934 in Weird Tales. It says here it's the far future, and perhaps the other stories might define that better, but in this story you don't really get that impression, I don't think. It seems you know, much more like Conan, a kind of a swords and sorcery mm-hmm. It could be in the ancient past or the distant future, either way, really. But there's an entire genre of weird fiction that's like that, Dying Earth stories, as they're collectively known. So like Jack Vance's The Dying Earth, uh, Zothique, and there's, mm. there's countless others, are very much like that. That They are set in a time where civilizations have risen and fallen and that you have a period of history where magic and lost technologies and everything have sort of fused together with all these weights of history bearing down on them and created something weird. And that's very much what Zothique is. You have to really read a few of the other Zothique stories to get an idea of that it's supposed to be at the far end of humanity's future, that it's in the world as it lays dying. But yeah, he wrote quite a few in that cycle. Are they all as good as this one, Matt? Because I really enjoyed this story. I thought Abo Sathler, the story itself, was, you know, so-so. I mean, I have read this story before a while back, but, you know, sitting down and reading it this time, The Charnel God, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was a really great read. Oh, it is. It's definitely an improvement on The Seven Gearses for Smith. Yeah. It's almost like two stories that collide but are still told in such a way that they feel as one that you've got the fellow and his wife that arrive in town, she then gets mistaken to be dead, and you've got the necromancer who's trying to Mm. do a grand theft corpse from the temple. It just wraps up so nicely as well, and it's so evocative with how it describes Mm. the priest. So it's a wonderful little story. I really, really enjoy it. Yeah. Mordigian is the god of Zorbasair. He has been the god from years that are lost to man's memory and shadowed deeper than the subterranes of his black temple. There is no other god in Zorbasair, and all who die within the walls of the city are sacred to Mordigian. No living men other than the priests have ever beheld him, and the faces of the priests are hidden behind masks of silver, and even their hands are shrouded, that men may not gaze upon them that have seen Mordigian. Now, we get some creepy shit about these priests, don't we? Mm-hmm. These, oh, yes. So if you die in Zulbasar, your body automatically goes to the temple. The priests turn up, they're all like masked and got robes and stuff on, so you can't see them, and they take the body to the temple. You can't visit the temple, the body doesn't come back. That's it. And also, there's a couple of references in the text about these priests. It's kind of hearsay and rumour. No one knew the manner of their recruiting. It's not like, you know, your nephew is recruited to be a priest or your uncle was one. No, nobody knows where they come from. But also, people speak of fouler things that these priests do. There's a reference to them. The dead might be consumed in there, but they speak of fouler things. Mm. Your mind can't help but, you know, guess what those fouler things Mm -hmm. might be. Well, they doesn't spell it out. But we do see hints of that in this story, but not from the priests. The necromancer 
Yeah, his great plot there is basically that he has killed this beautiful young woman through sorcery and is now using necromancy to resurrect her and shuffle her out and basically make her into his sex slave. So it is creepy as fuck and... There are certainly hints that he is not averse to necrophilia. Mm. This is sort of classic pulp writing in a lot of ways in that it dances around all these really unsavory things and just skirts the line of stating them, but they're there. Definitely with the with the priests, there's almost a uh, creature-like aspect to them. Mm. I listened to an audio reading of it and then followed along with the book because I just generally find it's quicker for me to read like that. But there was one particular passage in which the priest first turned up that it referred to them, I believe, as in the text figures mm. in the Ballantine book, but the audiobook said creatures instead. Okay. I'm not sure if there's, because I know there's variations upon different edits mm. of Lovecraft's work, whether there's a different edit of the channel got out there somewhere, but I thought it was an interesting thing for them to flag them as very much creatures, in inverted commas, that early on in the story. might be interesting to compare that with the text in the Nightshade Editions book, because those, I believe, are actually corrected from Smith's manuscripts. Ah, yeah, I do have those after having paid a lot to track down the last couple of volumes of those, which is kind of indicative of any Nightshade collection, so I found. There's always one or two that are ridiculously expensive to get hold of, whereas the others, so like, oh, yeah, you can have these first three without any problem, but the other two you've got to pay. But eventually we do encounter Mordigian himself in the story. In fact, I think we have a longer description of him than we get of most other gods in the mythos. It's a couple of paragraphs yeah. and goes into really quite a lot of detail. Really quite a lot of detail for something that doesn't have a lot of detail. And I think what Smith goes into here is a lot of the associated sensory impressions, including smell, which you don't often get in the mythos so i was reading the story i was beginning to think oh wait a minute is mordigian actually a thing or is it just mm. is it just a fiction in the fiction if you like are these priests themselves just a cult of ghouls eating the bodies and then telling people oh no you know your yeah. god mordigian that's where they go don't worry about it but no <laughs> we do actually get mordigian he is real the characters in the story perceive it a colossal shadow that was not wrought by anything in the room. It filled the portals from side to side. It towered above the lintel. And then swiftly it became more than a shadow. It was a bulk of darkness, black and opaque, that somehow blinded the eyes with a strange dazzlement. It seemed to suck the flame from the red urns and fill the chamber with a chill of utter death and voidness. Its form was that of a worm-shapen column, Huge as a dragon, its further coils still issuing from the gloom of the corridor. But it changed from moment to moment, swirling and spinning as if alive with the vortical energies of dark eons. Briefly, it took the semblance of some demonic giant with eyeless head and limbless body, and then, leaping and spreading like smoky fire, it swept forward into the chamber. He saw the blackness grow and wax with the towering of fed flame as it closed about Arctella, and he saw it gleam with eddying hues of sombre iris, like the spectrum of a sable sun. For an instant he heard a soft flame-like murmuring. Then, quickly and terribly, the thing ebbed from the room. Arctella was gone, 
as if she had dissolved like a phantom on the air. Born on a sudden gust of strangely mingled heat and cold, there came an acrid odour such as would rise from a burnt-out funeral pyre. Smith could write very nice evocative prose. Yeah, that's good stuff. And it reminds me, I'm sure it was the art brief for the illustration in Malleus, which we'll include in the show notes, I think, which is this tall black snaking form with bits coming out of it. We have this image of this thing that feeds upon the dead. He is described as the invisible eater of the dead. But at the same time, this isn't just the simple consumption of flesh like we'd see from a ghoul. It's like a living funeral pyre that just embraces the body and doesn't eat it as we'd consider eating to be, but provides this sort of final transition, this final cremation almost, just from black flame. Yeah, a total consumption of the body and the person altogether, yeah. What's really important in this story is the fact that Mordigian only feeds on the dead, because this is a major plot point, because as you mentioned, Matt, there is this character in it who is considered to be dead, but is in fact in a coma, and Mordigian won't touch her because she's not dead, and he only eats the dead. As the uh, final showdown takes place in the temple, one of the priests turns and basically gives this nice bit of exposition saying, don't worry, guys, you've still got a pulse. You can get out of here. We're going to just take care of these guys that basically pissed off our god by trying to wake the dead. So, yeah, you just get out of here. Don't listen to the screams. Just just go. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was thinking back on the description, the, the art brief for the beastie, that there is a great representation of Mordigian on screen. The smoke monster from Lost could pretty much be used as a template for this thing. I don't know. These flame-like aspects that are referred to here, well, I suppose those are sounds rather than visual things. I was thinking also there's that aspect of lightning running through it in the smoke creature in Lost. Yeah. It kind of screams to me that it's inspired by the description of Mordigian. Hmm, maybe. And in the end, Mordigian's masked and shrouded priests are revealed, indeed, to be ghouls, as we suspected. This led to Mordigian becoming a kind of lord of the ghouls or a god of the ghouls in Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, and in Call of Cthulhu, Mordigian is listed as a great old one mm. rather than a god. It's a fine difference. And I think we'll get to a possible source for that in a moment. Yeah, I think here, I don't think he really is. I don't think he's either necessarily portrayed as a lord of the ghouls or a great old one. That... What we see here is maybe he's a god, maybe this is an entity that feeds on the dead. Beyond having a temple dedicated to him and a priesthood, doesn't necessarily display any divine characteristics. This is a necrophage. It's one thing it actually discusses in the, uh, the Malice Monstorum entry for this as well, that for a great old one, it can travel around a lot. Normally, you find that the Great Old Ones are tied to a specific location or they have some kind of restriction on them. If you take just the Charnel God story that says, yeah, it's a god in this city, the way it's been expanded in subsequent fiction implies that it could turn up anywhere. It could turn up in the dreamlands. Mm. It can be encountered back mm. in time. It was in, in ancient Egypt for a long time. It's certainly a mobile Great Old One. I would 
tend to peg it as something else entirely. Treating it as a very localised entity, treating it as a, a city god, is quite an interesting thing to do as well. Because, I mean, apart from anything else, as we see in the story here, it shaped an entire culture around it, which is something that, if it were a more omnipresent form of death, we wouldn't necessarily see because it wouldn't necessarily be a constant presence just in that one temple. And obviously, if we take the idea of Zothique being the far future, I mean, Mordigin may have been around for much longer than that, so we could have stuff that's set in the present day or other historical periods where you do have these cults of Mordigian that are just local things that are gathered around wherever he is at that time. I've certainly used him like that before. Hmm. And what about other writers? Have other writers picked up on Mordigian and used the god or the great old one in their own works? Not many. No. Smith himself made two more references to Mordigian in his own work. He mentioned him in passing in another Zothic story called The Dark Eidolon and in a story fragment called The Infernal Star. Though both of these are just the classic Lovecraftian thing of here's a list of spooky names and one of them is Mordigian. There's nothing about him as an entity. The Zahik stories did that in a couple of instances where they had their own little pantheon that were very self-referential. But you could then interpret them as being like one, I think, was a classic avatar of Nyarlathotep kind of stand-in. And others are, so the names are tweaked slightly to become other gods. But yeah, they definitely had their own pantheon that they like to refer to a lot in classic Lovecraft fashion. But... Ultimately, the only other short story I could find that mentioned Mordigian outside Smith was this round robin story that was published on the internet back in the 90s. 97. Called The Looking Glass, published in a zine or website called Mythos Online. I think it was in the very first issue of it from having a look around. The website itself is now gone, but you can use the Wayback Machine to go back and find it, which is exactly what I did. Like I say, it's this round robin story that's written by Peter A. Worthy, Ian Davey, E.P. Berglund, and James Ambiel. And it's Ambiel's contribution to it that refers to Mordigian. There's only a few sentences that even reference him, but it fleshes him out slightly. It does reference him specifically being a great old one. I don't know if this is where it came from or whether the Call of Cthulhu before then had used Mordigian as a great old one, but this could be the root of it all but also one who offers pacts to people. And in this case, there is a sorcerer who has made a pact with Mordigian, basically for eternal life. Mordigian's price wasn't actually death, as you may have surmised, rather a sort of living death, an eternity trapped in a corpse-like shell. Whenever I hear corpse-like shell, I automatically think of the lyrics to Thriller. But that seems to go directly against the representation of Mordigian in The Charnel Guard. Mm. That story, The Looking Glass, had basically so many hey, I love Clark Ashton Smith deity references <laughs> in it. It was it was more of a Cuchillo Tass story than it was mm. Mordigian. I certainly didn't get much out of the story, <laughs> but I don't think there's that much to be gotten out of that story for uh, Mordigian either. Mm. And there's also a story by Thomas Ligotti called The Prodigy of Dreams that, while it's not a Mordigian story, it does include a god that has got some parallels. It's another death god. And more than that, another sort of mortician god that is described as a metamortician, a god called Sinothoglis. 
while it is explicitly not a Mordigian story, I think if you were looking at ways of representing Mordigian, it would be an interesting story to draw on. In name, the god is known as Sinothoglis, the god without shape, the god of changes and confusion, the god of decompositions, the mortician god of both gods and men, the metamortician of all things. One difference is that Synothoglis in this very much deals in death omens, so the story is very much about someone experiencing a whole bunch of death omens and that Synothoglis is sort of coming for him. Always like a bit of foreshadowing. Now, the place I know Mordigian from primarily is the old Call of Cthulhu supplement Realm of Shadows mm. from 1997 by John Crow. I ran this at the club, and you were in it, Matt, right? Oh, yes. One of my favourite campaigns. That was a while back, man. A great campaign, uh, a lot of fun, and Mordigian features pretty centrally. One of the parts of the campaign is you can effectively play through the events of the Charnel God. So it takes a story and turns it into a scenario. Nice. You go into the Dreamlands for that, I think. Yeah. There's a Dreamlands bit. Yeah, so it's a kind of a centred around ghouls, morticians, then ghouls, then ultimately Mordigian. It kind of strikes me, just springboarding off that the idea of that campaign. The first part of that campaign, regular Call of Cthulhu. Second part, Pulp. Oh, hell yeah. If you were to run it again, that's how you'd do it, right? I might even start as Pulp from the start, to be fair, rather than upgrade it. No, I think it's a real great, gritty scenario at the start. I, I definitely wouldn't... Because it's kind of just small town, very mundane, very realistic investigation. I, think I was thinking that bit with the tunnels in particular, that screams Pulp action. Uh, yeah, I mean, that could be, yeah, for sure. But anyway, maybe we're getting off the track of things there. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that, that has an article about more digging in it. But I mean, this is long out of print now. And, but that, that's the primary thing I think of with more digging. But the other references in more modern publications, we've got the entry in Malleus Monstrorum, of course. Mm -hmm. And I believe there's one of the scenarios in the Stygian Fox collection, Fear's Sharp Little Needles, that deals with more digging as well. And of course, you wrote a Bob or Cthulhu scenario around him. Indeed. Ah, how could we forget that? I didn't know. So. <laughs> right. In the story of the Charnel God, there's the implication that he's a benign deity, yeah. not a malevolent one, which is a kind of a, a somewhat unusual thing. So, you know, how would we use him in a game? Because he's not, he doesn't really do that much in the story. He's there. If you go and invade the temple, he's going to get pissed. But if you leave the temple alone, the ghouls might come after you if you stop a, a dead body going to the temple but other than that you know using my example of the aforementioned world war cthulhu scenario i used him as kind of the catalyst for what started events but then very much the scenario focuses on the fallout of that initial encounter that he is say the thing that kickstarts everything and you ultimately get to meet him at the end in that proverbial shit i pissed him off in his temple moment but otherwise it's the fallout of everything else that's happening around him, very much like the Charnel God, that it focuses mm. on everything around him before finally going to his lair. But as presented in the Charnel God, he's not really a threat of any kind. His priests are, I mean, obviously having a whole bunch of angry ghouls to deal with is an existential threat. But unless you're undead in some respect, then he doesn't really seem like he'd be terribly interested in you. In fact, there's nothing even in the story to indicate that he could have any direct physical effect on you, that he does 
sort of cremate or speed on the decomposition or the final resting of the dead. But if you're alive, would that even do anything? Well, there's definitely a more deadly aspect to Malleus because he's one of the few monsters that has damage. Death! That's his damaging effect. (laughs) Just to build on what Scott said, this is a god that you don't really need to worry about, can't really do anything, but it's the priests you need to worry about. Much like the real world. (laughs) (laughs) He's an echo of society today. (laughs) Exactly. But it does strike me that the fact that he is interested in consuming or providing a final rest to the dead does make him quite useful in certain situations. I mean, the perhaps farcical extent of it would be he is the god you'd want to worship during a zombie apocalypse. But why are the ghouls giving the dead to this god? Yeah. If the ghouls eat the dead, well, they do, right? The ghouls eat the dead and possibly have carnal relations with them if if the earlier parts of the story are to be believed. Why do they then give them to this god? Is there, you know, maybe it's just like some religion, right? It doesn't need a, a rationale. But, you know, is there some sort of rationale? Do the ghouls actually get something out of it? Or are they just like worshipping this thing? I saw it as being very much like sharks with remoras and pilot fish, that you had this, I mean, not really apex predator, but this godlike figure that people have come to worship because of its involvement with the dead. The ghouls have formed a sort of, not parasitic, but symbiotic relationship there that they tend to its earthly affairs and as a result perhaps live on table scraps. Or maybe they're keeping it satiated, right? Mm. If they don't feed Mordigian, they know what's going to happen. We don't know what that is. But, you know, the ghouls know they've got to keep this thing fed. They can eat some of the dead, a few finger bones and things, but if they don't feed the bodies to Mordigian, he gets angry and then bad stuff happens. I was thinking something similar. I was almost picturing it a bit like a mob boss demanding his tithe. <laughs> that it's very much that, yeah, you've got to keep the bigger bully up the chain happy. Otherwise, he'll come and, well, you know, what they say, shit rolls downhill. Yeah. So maybe he wouldn't even, like, bother the humans. Maybe he'd be bothering the ghouls and ghoul society. But going back to this idea of him only feeding on the dead and the undead, if you had a scenario that was inspired by, say, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, and you had people being raised from their essential salts and posing threats that way, and the abominations who came back wrong, but other undead sorcerers who are coming back and creating chaos, particularly with having magical powers of their own, Sicking Mordigian on them seems like a really easy way of resolving the situation. Here's this corpse that's running around lunchtime. Mm. It's sort of deathly equivalent of we call the police. (laughs) (laughs) But the fact that Mordigian is associated with being this god of the dead, but seems to have this very limited scope and only seems to be interested in feasting on the dead... That seems like the kind of thing that you could have fun with in a scenario with people, sorcerers in particular, misunderstanding it. We've talked many times before about how characters who don't know as much as they think they do are actually dangerous. 
And so if you have a wizard who is drawing upon the power of Mordigian or trying to summon him or create magic based on his powers and so on, but just has this complete misunderstanding of what's going on that he's perhaps trying to use the power of Mordigian to raise the dead to bring someone back, which is the very antithesis of what Mordigian wants. And this is just getting Mordigian angry and he's going to start sending ghouls after you. I mean, this is one of the good things in game use, I think, about Modigian. It brings ghouls in. Yes. And everybody loves ghouls. Mm -hmm. They're great, right? They're tough, but they are a thing that a group of investigators can take on. And they have a society. You can talk to them. We've seen uh, Lovecraft stories. They link you to the dreamlands. They're great. You can fit ghouls into all sorts of stories. So if that's a way of getting through to Modigian, then uh, marvellous. I like a Gribbly that you can talk to, or rather one that can talk back. Absolutely. Compare that with Obo Sathler, and you know, that's, yeah. that's a bit more of a challenge. But you, know, you get ghouls on your side, you're good. But I guess it wouldn't even necessarily have to be ghouls. I, you could, if you were looking at, say, setting more digging scenarios in different times, perhaps even have something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or this sort of fucked up family or cannibal cult or whatever that has gathered around Mordigian and has got the same kind of symbiotic relationship with him. Mm. I think Grandfather in Chainsaw Massacre could well be a ghoul. I like the idea of a wonderful pulp crossover. Herbert West versus Mordigian. <laughs> You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com where you'll also find all our social media presences. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias. Thank you for listening. Well, much like a pantheon of deities, we have come to offer our thanks to our listeners and backers. Thank you very much to everyone who is listening to the podcast right now. Yes, you. Thank you very much. And thank you to everyone who has ever backed us. And we have a number of new Patreon backers to thank using their most sacred names. Yes, indeed. And let's just kick things off by saying... If I mess your name up or if we mess your name up, then our apologies. And if you want to let us know, then we will do our best to correct it in a future episode. But let me kick off by giving a thanks to Eric Jadra Zizak. And again, hopefully I'm getting the pronunciation right here. But also thanks to Johnny Dickov Fagerberg. And a familiar name here, I think. Thank you very much to Todd Gardner Spinks. And thank you to Dwight Fiddler. Ah, familiar name here. Thanks very much to our good friend, Evan Dawkin. Yes, thank you very much, Evan. Evan has been a great supporter of the podcast, along with the various art submissions that he's given us for the Blasphemous Tome. If you are a fan of weird fiction, which of course you are because you're listening to this sodding podcast, you should go out and check out Evan's current comic, Blackwood, which is basically like a Call of Cthulhu campaign in comic form as well as the fantastic podcast that he does with his good friend Paul Yelovich called Tear Them Apart, in which they tear apart some quite often terrible and, and sometimes very good horror films. And the graphic novel Color Cthulhu. And thank you very much to Brendan Borowski. And finally, thanks to Juan Antonio Casas. Hey, hey. Okay, well, there's an alpha and an omega for you. Abo Sathler, there at the beginning. Mordigian, there at the end. 
And that brings us to the end of another show. So may your gods of the sludgy fan and the infinite darkness go with you. I wouldn't travel anywhere without them. Oh, well, that's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com I was going to say, first he has members and then he's yeasty. Then there's certain qualities that this god I find quite troubling. Well, I'm constantly ejaculating all these single-celled organisms spreading life around like that. This is just basically a mythos fuckfest, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, boy.